Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. We're ready to begin. This morning's uh, Parsha Shir is dedicated. I want to express our gratitude to Susan Rosherstein, who's uh, dedicated the class in honor of Erefua Shlema, of her husband, who's undergoing surgery today. Chaim Yitzchak Ben Shendel Hinda should have a speedy and painless recovery. Everything should go smoothly. Should have a full Rufua Shlema. We'll begin as we always do with an overview of the Parsha and then delve into some Sukkim which are most often neglected because they're difficult to understand. And on the simple level, in fact, they are uh, salacious, scandalous, and uh, almost inappropriate. Now I've piqued your interest. Now you're excited. Now you're excited you came this morning. Okay. You picked, the, you picked the right day to come to the Parsha class. Okay, but you're going to have to earn it, so we have to get there. First we have to do the overview of the Parsha. Parsha is Vayera, page 78 in the Art Scroll Stone, Chumash. Parsha picks up where last week's Parsha left off. Avram Avinu, at an exceedingly advanced age, had given himself a bris milah, had circumcised himself and the members of his household, and now he finds himself recovering. He's recovering, and it's the third day of the recovery the most painless day of a recovery following surgery. And while everyone else would have been cooped up in bed, been tended to and nursed, Avram is sitting outside. Avram is sitting outside in the hot, blazing sun. He's not lying in bed. He's not recuperating. He's not being weighted on hand and foot. He is outside. And why is he positioned outside? Because for Avram... The greatest form of recovery is his capacity to do chesed. His ability to welcome the stranger and to play host and to exhibit kindness is all the medicine that he needs. Now what's happening? He's in the middle of talking to Hashem. Hashem. The Rav points out, this is one of those fascinating sections where Hashem reveals himself to Avraham but doesn't seem to say anything. There's no reference to Hashem speaking, Right? He reveals himself, but he doesn't seem to say anything. The Rav writes, this is from the new Rav Chumash, relatively new. What attracts our attention to this verse is the absence of the Vayomer, the absence of a message. What was the purpose of the revelation? What objective was God seeking? What did He tell Avram? Another difference, none of the preceding verses describing God's appearances to Avram use the pronoun a love. Avram is previously always referred to by name. So two things different that begin our parsha. Number one, it doesn't say Avram's name. It doesn't say Ve'era el Avraham. It says Ve'era a love, a pronoun. Just ambiguous. And number two, there's no Vayomer. He appeared to Avram saying, what did God want to achieve out of this interaction? Rashi says Ve'era a love, he came to Dubikr Cholim. Avram... God paid Avram a sick call because he was in pain after the bris. Rav Chama ben Chanina said it was the third day, as we said, all based on a Gemara in Bam Avram was in need, and God came to visit. There is no Vayomer, no message and no command, no law, no promise. God simply came to see him. It's a very powerful image. The Rav describes, if two individuals are close friends, sharing a sense of intimacy and companionship, one need not have a message to deliver in order to walk into the other's home. The highest form of friendship does not require words. Before this visit, the relationship between God and Avram was a formal one. It did not involve friendship. There was a contractual relationship. The Brisbane Absarim. There was a covenant. Employer and employee, master and servant. Every Vayera was accompanied by a Vayomer. But after Avram's bris and the covenant is established, there is a new intimacy, a new kind of friendship one that did not have to be expressed in words, did not need speech or a message. The use of a love demonstrates the change. As long as the relationship was a formal one, it's guided by the rules of courtesy. Formality requires mentioning the name. But when we visit a friend, you don't have to mention their name. The structure of the verb and subject in this verse is another indication. In the Torah, the verb and subject usually are not separated. If Vayera is the verb and God is the subject, the Pasuk should say, Vayera Hashem Elav. Not Vayera Elav Hashem. By reversing the subject and the object, the Torah emphasizes Avram was very close to Hashem. God longed to see him. God longed to see him. Very interesting opening, a very interesting insight of the Rav. So why does it say Elav and not Avram? Why is there a Vayera? He appeared, but no Vayomer. What did God say? What was he trying to achieve? And the message is, sometimes 
you don't come with a specific dialogue in mind. There is no agenda to the conversation. There is no message to communicate. You simply are offering companionship. True friendship, true intimacy. We'll talk tonight in part two of our Shalom Bayes series based on the Gottman principles. It's at 8.15 tonight. But true, a relationship has the comfort of companionship without there needing to be words. It's reminiscent of another halacha. This is true in Bikr Cholom. Where else do you see this? In? Nicham Avelim and paying a shiva call. The halacha is when you pay a shiva call, you're not allowed to speak until the mourner initiates. We've spoken about this in the past. You can listen online. You're not allowed to initiate conversation until the mourner speaks first. And when the mourner speaks, you follow the mourner's guide. If the mourner wants to talk, you talk. If the mourner wants silence, you're willing to sit silently. We learned this from Eov, whose friends sat with him in silence. In some ways, silence communicates much more than words ever could. Because if you're willing to endure the discomfort of sitting silently, then you're sending an implicit message. I just want to be here with you. Nothing needs to be said. I'm just sitting here with you. I visited people in the hospital where, not just their spouse, where it's obvious if you're sitting for hours on end, but a friend might have brought a book. The person's fallen asleep or is napping or is reading their own book and the friend is reading a book. So why bother? What's the point of visiting? You're reading a book? Answering your emails, your text messages? What's the point of visiting? And the answer is the companionship alone is comforting. Companionship alone relieves pain, relieves loneliness. So, says the Rav, that's what's going on here. Hashem didn't have an agenda. There was no commandment, there's no covenant, there's no interaction, there's no conversation. There's no vayomer. It's simply a vayera, a love, and the casual, a love, he didn't even need to say Avraham's name. What does Avram do? They're in the middle of companionship. I don't know if they're communicating, right? Based on the rub, they were sitting in silence. Ostensibly, there was conversation, because HaKadosh Baruch Hu can't sit with you physically in silence, so how do you know he's there through communication? So ostensibly, there must have been something. And what does, Hashem, what does Avram do to Hashem? Oh, he's sitting outside his tent, desperate to play host. Despite his physical ailments, he finds emotional and spiritual relief by being able to practice kindness. And what does he see? Who does he see walking towards him? Three men. We know them to be angels, but they appear to Avram to be men. And what does, I, what does Avram do to Hashem? He says, uh, Hashem, if you don't mind, could I call you back later? If you don't mind, could you hold that thought? Hold that thought, almighty creator, infinite, omnipotent, perfect being. Would you mind holding that thought? I just have to take care of something. And of course, Chazal deduced from here that it's even greater to play host than it is to communicate with the Almighty. We spoke about this on Simcha's Torah morning in the woman's shear when we developed the, uh, the ideas behind the mitzvah of Hachnasus Orchem more than just hospitality, it's a holy hospitality. There's a sacredness to, uh, to the mitzvah. We talked about that elsewhere. But one thing we mentioned that's worth repeating is God Himself gets nachas. You know, if, if, if you try to instill certain values in your children and then you're in the middle of talking to your kid on the phone, your child on the phone, and your child interrupts and says, I have an opportunity to put into practice one of the values you taught me. Is it okay if I call you back? You say, absolutely. A hundred percent. Call me back. What gives me greater nachas? My child talking to me or my child emulating me? being like me, putting into practice the values and ideals I've tried to teach them. So for Hashem, He'd much prefer that we try to be like Him than even talk to Him. But moreover, when we practice hospitality, we're taking care of His other children. You know, it's like if you're talking to one child and they say, "Um, I see my brother or sister walking, they look tired and thirsty and hungry and have nowhere to stay. Mom, do you mind, Dad, do you mind if I call you back later? I want to take care of my sibling. What parent would say, no, let him starve. Let him drop dead. You're in the middle of talking to me. Let him collapse. You're in the middle of talking to me. How dare you hang up? No parent would ever say that. Say, absolutely, I couldn't get more nachas. Absolutely, call me back. I'll call you back later. Go take care of my other child. And that's what the Ribbon Shalom says as well. Much more to talk about that. We have and we will come back to it another time. So Avram rushes to the tent. Sarah, hurry and cook and bake. And we know through Chazal, this was Pesach. 
even though the historical event of Pesach had not yet occurred, Avram and Sarah are observing the theme and the motif and the message of Pesach nonetheless. The angels come to deliver a message to Sarah that she's going to have a child. Sarah, of course, is cynical. We've spoken about this in the past. You could listen to one of the previous parts of Shirim. If you look at the way the Targum translates the word Tzachaka, it is with a certain level of cynicism, sarcasm. Sarah's laughter was not joyful as it was afterwards. Because the great question is, if Sarah is criticized for her laughter in the beginning of the Parsha, why is it appropriate that ultimately when that child is born, she gives him the name laughter? Wouldn't you think you would not use the very name, the very word that describes the behavior you exhibited that you were criticized and condemned by the Almighty for? And the answer is, that word has multiple meanings, and you see that through Unclus' translation. Later, Yitzchak, later when she laughs, Unclus translates, it's laughter, it's joyful, it's happiness, it's relief. But here, the laughter is not laughter, it's cynicism and sarcasm. She's in disbelief, she doesn't think it's a possibility. Avram learns about the destruction of Sodom. Kosh says, how could I possibly conceal this from my beloved Avram? He's risked so much to have a relationship with me. We share a closeness and an intimacy, which the core of closeness is conversation, is communication. Hashem says, I need to communicate. This major catastrophic event that's going to take place, I need to communicate. it." So he tells Avram. Why does he feel close to Avram? This is an aside. Top of page 82. Why does he feel close to Avram? And therefore, how could I possibly conceal this from Avraham? Why does Hashem love Avram? Because Avram discovered him? No. Because Avram promotes him? I would think Hashem would be pretty happy with Avram because Avram stands on soapboxes everywhere, risks his life, is willing to be the Ivri, Me'evra on the other side of the world as everybody else. But that's not it either. Because he survived, he jumped into the Kivshan Aish? No. Because he circumcised himself at an advanced age? No. Why does Hashem love Avram? You don't have to guess. It's not a medrash. Shtayt in the Pasuk says it explicitly. Hashem loves Avram ultimately because Avram is a good father. Because Avram faithfully transmits his values to his children. And in the end of the day, Avram's greatness is not measured by the followers that he amasses and accumulates, but by his success in transmitting to future generations, to the continuity of his values. So what is it that Hashem reveals to Avram? Reveals to Avram what he's going to do to Stone. Stone we talked about last week. Stone is the epitome, the bumper sticker, the billboard in Stone, every man for himself, every woman for herself, the prohibition of showing benevolence, of kindness. We know in Stone... Everything was, what's mine is mine, what's yours is yours, Zemi the stone. We talked all about. And Hashem felt that such a corrupt, decadent, morally depraved uh, place could no longer continue in this world. And here, this is very instructive. How does Avram react? So much of Sefer Bracious is counterintuitive. How does Avram react? I would have expected Avram to react. You go, God. Absolutely destroy him, wipe him out, level them. He's seen with his own eyes. He's interacted with Stom. He saw what they did to his nephew Lot. He knows what Stom is all about. Stom is the epitome of evil. Avram is the symbol of good. If you love Hashem, if you stand for good, you hate evil. One would expect Avram to say, level them, annihilate them, exterminate them, remove them. But that's not the Midah of Avram. What does Avram do? Uh, Hashem, are you sure? Is there nothing redeeming about Sodom? 50 tzaddikim? And then the count begins going down. Mephoshim explained, he didn't really begin with the number 50. Stone was really made up of five cities. Each one, he was saying, if there are 10 in each one, if there is a minion in each one. Why did he think that if there were a minion in each one? Because what would the minion do? Daven for the others. If you have a minion, then you have a tzibur. So if you have a minion of righteous people, you have a critical mass, you have a core tzibur in each sub-community of, of Sodom. Sodom was like 
you know, the general Boca del Mar, and then there were sub-communities, there were five sub, not to compare, chas v'shalom, but then there were sub-communities within the general development, or sub-developments within the greater HOA. Sodom was the, again, nothing to do with the Midah of Sodom, but sub-communities among the greater community. So there were five sub-communities, he arrived at the number 50, because he was trying to see, are there 10 in each sub-community, is there a core seaboard of righteous people? So not only does, Asher, does Avraham not say, I'll be your biggest cheerleader, wipe him out, I'll go on the talk shows and defend you why you needed to do it. Not only does he not do that, but here's the other incredible, incredible thing. If you're Avram and you discover God, it means you've known since you're a child that you are a lowly, finite, limited individual. You've discovered God. That means you know He's infinite and omnipotent and all-knowing and all-powerful. Are you going to disagree with Hashem? Hashem says, look, just wanted to let you in. I'm the Almighty. I'm infinite. I understand everything better than anyone ever could. I created you all. I'm giving you the courtesy of letting you know that I'm going to wipe out stone because I love you. And if you love someone, you don't keep things from them. So I'm giving you the courtesy of letting you know. If you're Avram, you say, well, you're God. You're God, I'm not. Okay, whatever you say. Thanks for the heads up. Whatever you say. But Avram doesn't say that. He says, come on. What does he do? He protests. He essentially protests. Perhaps the first uh, example of social action in history, in the Torah. He protests. He has a rally. He says, Hashem, I object. Who are you to object? And I think you see a very important lesson from here that sometimes Hashem wants us to object. He wants us to follow our moral compass. He wants us to live with a sensitivity. He wants us to pursue righteousness and justice to the, form, the, the point that we protest. We've had to say to Hillam, unfortunately, on a number of occasions, for gravely ill babies, children, people. And I always quote, you know, the Rambam talks about that everybody should worry if one among them is sick. But I also think you see from the precedent of Avraham that sometimes Hashem wants us to say, we protest. A form of tefillah is to protest. Ultimately, we are submissive. Ultimately, we submit ourselves to your will. Ultimately, you Hashem have the final say. But we protest. We object. And that's our moral conscience that is objecting. If ultimately Hashem, despite overrules our objection, we defer to Him. But sometimes he invites and welcomes and wants us to object. And so I think it's a misnomer and a mistake when people think that in our religion, if someone receives horrific news of a terrible diagnosis, if someone hears terrible things are going on in Eretz Yisrael, to be angry at God, or that's the wrong term, angry, but to protest what Hashem is doing is not a lack or failure of faith. Sometimes it is the highest expression of faith. You only protest someone you believe exists. You only object to someone who you think is really in control. You wouldn't waste your breath or your time otherwise. So a very powerful form of emuna, a very high level of tefillah, is like Avram Avinu. Faith, emuna, does not demand that we passively and complacently accept all that happens. Okay, diagnosed. Whatever will be. Hashem, has, Hashem always knows what's best. Who am I? No, who are you? He wants you to say, how could you do that to me or someone I love? In the end, we have to accept. In the end, we don't use our questions as an excuse to avoid or to walk away from Hashem. In the end, it should draw us closer. But He expects us, perhaps even wants us, to protest and object. And you might think it's, it is a, a form of heresy, what I'm suggesting. It's what Avram Avinu does with stone. Moshe Rabbeinu does it too. When he says to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Moshe says... Show me your face. Show me your system. Why do, why do bad people suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good people suffer? Why do bad things happen to good people? Let me understand. To which Hashem replies, you can only see the back of my head, not the front. You can only understand things in retrospect. You can't understand them as they unfold. But Moshe asked to understand Avram Avinu here is, uh, is objecting and protesting. And perhaps that is a precedent for us as well. Sodom is ultimately destroyed. Lot, the, uh, the three angels, one comes to say the good news about Yitzchak, one of the angels comes in order to save Lot. So they go into Sodom, they say, Lot, come with us. Lot learned from Avraham, and Lot hosts these angels. 
Now, there's a big deal. When Lot is saved, ultimately Chazal tells us he's saved in the merit of... It's not a trick question. The merit of... Avram. Why did Lot need the merit of Avram? If Lot had learned from his uncle and played a great host himself, offered hospitality to these angels, not only did he offer hospitality, he offered the hospitality at the risk to his life. Because it was a capital crime in Sodom to be hospitable. And in fact, that's exactly what happens in the text. When the people of Sodom hear that Lot is hosting someone, what do they do? They approach him. And they want to kill him. Uh, where is it? They come and they want to kill him. It's a capital crime. So if Lot is willing to risk his life to practice Achnas Zorachim, why is he only rescued in the merit of his uncle Avram? Why is his own merit not enough? So there's a fundamental difference between when the angels come to Avram and when they come to Lot. When they come to Avram, they appear as? Angels. When they come to Avram, they appear as? Men. When they come to Lot, they appear as? Angels. To be willing to host angels is no big deal. To host wandering nomads when you've just had surgery and you extend yourself, that's impressive. That's impressive. If I ask you to put up a dignitary, if I ask you to put up a prestigious individual in your home, who's going to say no to the opportunity to play host to some prominent, famous person, powerful person? But if I ask you to put up a nobody, so-called nobody, an anonymous visitor with no prestige, no power, no celebrity, you can't drop their name afterwards and impress anybody, that's impressive to host such, such an individual. Lode hosted men who he knew were angels. Avram hosted angels who he thought were men. So what happens? The men come. They come to kill Lot. And Lot says, uh, what happens? Lot has this funny interaction. He realizes it's time to leave. He tries to get his sons-in-law. He tells them, look, bad news. And what do the sons-in-law do? One of the characteristics of the city of Sodom is sarcasm, cynicism. Similar not, not at all the same, but similar to what, um, to what uh, Sarah herself, the way Sarah herself reacted to the news of having a son at an advanced age. Lod speaks to his sons-in-law who had taken his daughters. Come, let's go. We're getting out of here. city's about to be destroyed. You're, you're welcome. I'm rescuing you. We got the heads up. And how do they react? <laughs> he seemed like he was joking in their eyes. Because when you're, a, when you're a sarcastic individual, when you take nothing seriously, when you're cynical, then you don't even take the message that could save your life seriously. You reject it. And that's exactly what they do. I'll tell you just as an aside, this will come up in part three or four of the Shalom Bayez series. What are Lot's sons-in-law called? Vaidaber El, in the middle of page 86. Perak Yotes, Pasuk Yodalad. What's a son-in-law called in Hebrew? Chatan, Chasan. How do you say daughter-in-law in Hebrew? Kala. Isn't it a funny thing? Your children could be married for 50 years and your son-in-law is still the Chasan? Your daughter-in-law is still the Kala? This is a biblical phrase. And he went to speak to Chasnav, the, the Chasanim, his sons-in-law, the Chasanim, the grooms. Isn't it funny? Your kids can be married forever and you're still calling your son-in-law a Chasan, your daughter-in-law a Kala? We can't? We ran out of words? We ran out of words? You can't find a better word? Rechaim Kanievsky explains, I think it's a beautiful insight. Again, we'll mention this in the third or fourth part of the marriage seminar when we talk about in-law relationships. <coughs> but he says the secret to uh, the relationship between in-laws and their children-in-law is to continue to have the attitude you had when your child was first engaged to them. When your child was first engaged to your son-in-law, he could do no wrong. It didn't matter who he was or how he behaved or how uh, sloppy or how he didn't help or how he wasn't grateful or how he whatever, but he was perfect because he was about to be your son-in-law. When they're engaged, oh, could do no wrong. And if you bring that same attitude throughout, throughout your relationship with them, 
then you'll have a healthy relationship. So therefore, they never, if you allow them to never lose that status, perpetually they are the chassan and the kala, the son-in-law is the chassan, the daughter-in-law is the kala, they could be married for a week, they could be married for 50 years, remain that way. Fine. So Lot's sons-in-law reject him, they stay put, they keep Lot's daughters, but Lot grabs his two single girls, and they book, they get out of there, they break out. And they're running and they're fleeing. Lod begs to be able to stop over in one of the cities. He doesn't think he's going to make it. And uh, Hashem concedes and allows him to. Hashem destroys Sodom. He rains down like a nuclear... It's almost like a nuclear bomb. Hashem emtir al stombi alamora gafris vo'es me'es Hashem min Hashem caused sulfur and fire to rain on stone out of the heaven. You tell me what that sounds like. It's like in Yechezkel. When it talks Mechemes Gogu Magog in the time of Yechezkel, it's a similar description. And it sounds like a Chas Vashalom, a nuclear war. Gafres Ve'es Min HaShamayim. This sounds like Chas Vashalom. Maybe in Stom's case it was good. But a nuclear war. Lot's wife is told that they don't have the merit, the virtue to be able to see destruction. Who are they? They're not so righteous that they could bask in uh, seeing the destruction, Lot's wife turns around anyway and turns into a pillar of salt. And the, the, the um, loss of Lot's wife is critical introduction to the next section, which is the one that we're going to study more carefully, what Lot's daughters do with him following the catastrophe of stone. Yes? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was Sodom, which was the composite of the sub-communities. He waited on the 5th because Lot needed a place. He was, ti- uh, he was tired and begged for a place to rest on the way. But ultimately, yes. Um, Lot goes up to Soar with his two daughters. We're going to come back to this in a moment. And has a bizarre interaction. Perhaps that's the best word. Bizarre interaction with them. Next, Avram is in Gerar. Poor Sarah who's gone through this before, is abducted. Avimelech has a dream, and uh, so on and so forth. Let's her go. Avimelech has a relationship with Avram and Sarah, appeases him. And then we have what they were waiting for. Vashem pokar Sarah kasher amar. Hashem fulfills the promise. Sarah is pregnant. Yishmol is born. Hagar, I mean Yitzchak rather. Sorry, Yitzchak is born. Hagar and Yishmol are expelled from the house. And while it looked like Yishmael's days are numbered, he is saved, and the alliance is set with uh, Avimelech. And finally, the parsha ends with what some say is the tenth and final trial. Maybe we'll mention next week, Rabbi Yonah disagrees and says the tenth and final trial happens at the beginning of next week's parsha, Chayesara. But either way, perhaps the greatest of the trials, Lech Lecha Har HaMoriah, Avram is asked to go slaughter his own son, his beloved son, the son in whom he sees his entire future and everything that will follow him. You understand what a trial this is? Avram gets up and he faces the entire world. He faces the pressure of the world, the scorn and the mockery of the world. And he says, you can all keep bowing down to the stars and the moon and the sun, these idols. I'm telling you there's one God. And I'm telling you that I've been given a promise by God. I'm going to have children like the sands on the beach and the stars in the sky and they're going to inhabit the earth and they're going to bring the values I'm telling you come from this God of justice and charity and loving kindness and equality. And that's what's going to happen. And he's on soapboxes everywhere. He's on every talk show. He's interviewed on every news station. He's writing op-eds in every major newspaper. And he's saying, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to turn into a great nation and I'm taking the message I'm sharing with you today and it's going to spread far and wide. And then God comes to him and says, uh, you know the plan, the, the progeny and the following, the, please kill your son, leaving you no future whatsoever. Do you know how embarrassing, humiliating, do you know how devastating to your life mission, everything you've risked, everything you've preached, everything you've talked about, it undermines everything, everything that Avram had dedicated his life towards. It was Hashem saying to Avram, you've spent your entire life working on something, pick it up and put it in the shredder. Destroy it. Destroy it. Forget the emotional attachment to a son. Who could forget that? But put aside for a moment the emotional attachment and asking a father to do such a thing to a child. But in terms of his own life mission, this question. Plus Hashem is asking Avram to go against his very nature. 
which some suggest is our understanding into the Avos to begin with. Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov each face tests, and each test is, how can you prove that even your noble qualities are really in the service of Hashem, and that you're not just predisposed to have them? You know, who says that Avram loves Chesed because he is pledging his life to Hashem? Maybe he's just predisposed to Chesed. Who says Yitzchak is about Gvura? Who says Yaakov is about Emes? Maybe they're just predisposed towards those behaviors. They're pre-programmed to be like that. Who says they're like that in service of Hashem? So Hashem tests them and says, I want you in service to me to go entirely against what is your nature. Avram, you're the man of Chesed? Kill your son. Yaakov, you're the man of truth? Go lie to your father. They're tests in order to prove that even their innate quality too is dedicated in the service of Hashem, is to violate their innate quality. And that's how our Parsha ends. But I want to get back to the Pesukim I want to study because we're already halfway through. Aaron Akain, you have a comment back there? Yeah, why, what say you? Oh, some are disturbed by that question. Some are very disturbed by that question. The question was, when Hashem says, I'm destroying Sodom, how could you? How dare you? You mustn't. <coughs> Hashem says, Avram, I want you to take your son and go on the mountain and slaughter him. Okay. Where's the protest? Where's the objection? Where's the rally? Where's the hesitation? It's an excellent question. Beyond the scope of our conversation, but I will just bring to your attention the difference is when it comes to stone, that's external to Avram. Avram is protesting what's happening to someone else. When Hashem is asking something of Avram, that's a test. That's Hashem asking something of Avram, not informing him of something he's doing to others. That might be the beginning of an answer. What I want to look at together is Perak Yutes, chapter 19, Pasuk Lamed, verse 30. Bottom of page 88 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. What happens here? Stone is destroyed, Stone is eliminated. Lot and his two single daughters are saved. They're exhausted, fleeing. On the way, Lot not only lost his two married daughters and Hassanim, his sons-in-law, but on the way he loses his wife. He's now all alone together with his two daughters. Lot ascends onto the mountain. Ushtei bin Osav Imo, and his two daughters are with him. Ki He's afraid to remain in Soar. Vayeshev b'me'ara, hu ushtei bin Osav. So Lot goes up from Soar, he settles on the mountain. His two daughters are with him. He's afraid of Soar. He goes into a cave, he and his two daughters. Why is he afraid to stay in Soar? Like a Rashi. It's too close, too close for comfort. Been there, done that. Lost everything he knew, lost his wife, not interested. So he goes to hide in a cave after observing the destruction of Stone, losing two of his children and his wife. Now they're in a cave. What happens in this cave? One of the most bizarre, salacious, scandalous, disturbing stories in the entire Torah, in the entire Tanakh. The older of his two daughters says to the younger, Avinu Zakain. Our father's an old man. There is no man in the land to come upon us as men come upon women. Let us inebriate our father. Let us intoxicate our father with wine. And lie with him. And then we will bring children into this world through him. And they, in fact, give their father wine to drink that night. I'm sure it wasn't difficult. After all, Lot had been through. What's the first thing Noach does when he comes off the teva? He plants a vineyard and he gets drunk. What's the first thing Lot does when he survives this destruction? He accepts a drink and he gets drunk. The older lies with her father, he is unaware. He is so drunk. He's in a drunken stupor. In fact, we refer to this in halachic terminologies when you want to identify, you know, if you had a little l'chaim at the Kiddush Club, can you still daven musaf? 
Not, you shouldn't go to a kiddush club. That was a bad example I just gave. <laughs> we don't, of course, don't condone kiddush clubs. But if you, uh, uh, it comes up lahalacha, the beer halacha, the Mishnah talk about in Purim. If you uh, drink a little bit on Purim, what do you do about benching? What do you do about davening? Can you daven? Can you bench? Can you count in a minion? Well, it depends how much you've had to drink. What's the expression that we use in rabbinic literature to describe somebody who is so wasted, who is so gone, that they have no awareness, consciousness, that they cannot daven? They are drunk, a shikr, kishichru shel lot. The halachic term we use to describe somebody who is so wasted that they can't possibly participate in davening is that the shikr kishich ruso shall lot. So that's how blasted lot got. His daughter has given him drinks, he's gone. He doesn't even know that he just had intimacy with his daughter. Vayihimi macharas. The next day, vatomar bechirel atzira. Hein shachafti emeshes avi. The plan worked. I gave dad to drink last night and then I slept with him. Nashkenu yayin gamalayla. Uvo shichmi imo. Your turn. Continue, give dad to drink tonight, and you go and lie with him. So that we can create continuity from him. They gave him to drink again that night. And the younger one now lies with her father. He is again so wasted. I mean, it's pretty impressive. Two nights in a row he could get so blasted. He still has the hangover from the first night. But he does. He's the unaware... He's with the younger. The two become impregnated from this acts of intimacy. The older has a son. And what does she call him? Moab. What does the name Moab mean? Says the Ibn Ezra, Moab is Me'av. What does she name her son? Incest. Come here, little incest la... He fills out on his SAT, I, N, C, he fills in, incest, that's his name, Moab, Me'av. She pinches his cheek and says, oh, my little incest boy. That's the name she gives. Hu avi Moab arayom, and that is the origin of the nation of Moab until today. Vatsira gamu, gamhi yelda ben, the younger one also has a son, Vatikrashmo ben ami. What does she call him? Amon, who avi bnei Amon arayom Amon is ben um, ben ami, also incest. She essentially names her son, but disguises it a little bit better. End of passage. I don't know about you. It's very disturbing. Sodom is destroyed, and what does Lot do right after? He gets drunk, sleeps with his two daughters, and they have children: Amon and Moab. Hey, let's get dad drunk. Let's sleep with him. We'll have children from him. We're lonely. There's no men around. Are you not incredibly disturbed by this passage? Well, if you're not disturbed enough, let me throw in another fact. Who descends from Moab? This union, this unholy union, this ancestral union between Lot and his daughter, particularly the older one, is the progenitor of David HaMelech, Rus, David HaMelech, and ultimately Mashiach. Mashiach. So if you take a moment to study Mashiach's background, where does Mashiach come from? Mashiach comes from the story of Yehuda and Tamar, where Yehuda sleeps with his daughter-in-law, but it's okay because he thought she was a prostitute. (laughs) Mashiach comes from Lot sleeping with his daughter, which yields the nation of Moab, the progenitor of Rus. The whole background of Mashiach is so deeply disturbing, and there are more stories of... If Mashiach... I'm going to write about for this week what I think is a terrible phenomenon going on in the Shidduch world today, the whole notion of a resume. But if you got the resume of Mashiach and wanted to set him up with your daughter, you would rip up that resume so fast and send it back to the Shadchan and say, are you out of your mind? This yichus? This background? This baggage? If Mashiach had to have a resume, he would never get married. There'd be no shirach that would accept the Mashiach. So why does Mashiach come from this? What's really going on in these psukim? So much that Mashiach comes, that's what I want to study with you in our remaining 20 minutes together. Quick questions. 
Oh, that's an excellent question. I didn't see anyone talk about that. Maybe they got the wine from, maybe they took it with them when they were leaving Stone. They're running away, so people have been known to take a flask of a little something while they're running away. It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be the first time. Maybe it was in the, maybe they found it in the cave. Maybe outside the cave there was a vineyard. I don't know. I'm sure somebody talks about it. I didn't see. I didn't see. Hami. Okay, don't give suggestions. That's my job. We're going to run out of time. So I'll give you the suggestions. Let's look at the Imaforshim. Rashi. Avinu Zakain, our father's an old man. Says Rashi, What happens if dad dies? What happens if dad becomes impotent? Why were they so concerned? Who cares? Who wants to sleep with their father? Right? That was their concern. Avinu Zakain, our dad's an old man. Who cares? I mean, you care. You love your dad. You want him to live forever. But you don't care that you're concerned about his virility. You're not, that's, not your, that's not your business. That's not your concern. So why do they care? Says the Pasuk, Ish ein ba'aretz. Says Rashi, Svuros hayu, Shekol ha'olam nechorov k'mobador ha'mabol. Oh, look at what just happened through the eyes of Lot and his daughters. And now you understand better the parallel to Noah and the role of wine. Noah survives a flood and lives only, survives with his family. Lot survives the destruction of the city, but for all he knows, for all his daughters know, Hashem once destroyed the world with water, and now he's destroyed the world with fire. Look at the Rashbam, Rashi's grandson. V'yishen ba'aretz. Once God destroyed the world with a flood, and now He's destroying the world with fire. But God has pressed reset again. He's rebooted the machine again. And they think, like in the case of Noah, who's left in the world? Dad and the two of us. That's all that exists. That's their thinking. That's their thinking. It's pretty devastating. Noah survives the flood, he needs a drink. Lot survives destruction, he needs a drink. And the fear, or the recognition, or the thought that you are it, you are all that exists. Says Rashi, we're going to go through just the Rashi's here, and then I'll share some more Mephoshim. Says Rashi, So with the older one it says, she sleeps with her father, and the younger one it says, she lies with him. So it doesn't mention she slept with her father with the younger one because the younger one was a little more pure, was pristine. Where did she learn this idea of incest? From her sister. So the older sister, it says it spells it out. She slept with her father. With the younger one who was only the product, the influence of her older sister, Therefore, it protects her a little bit by not suggesting, says Vatishkav Imo. Uvekuma, when she woke up, that the Lot did not know, Lot was unaware when he slept with and when, he, when she lay down or when she rose. Uvekuma, you'll note, has a dot on top of it. In the Torah, it has, it's Nakud, it has a dot. Says Rashi, Lomar, Shevakuma Yada, Vafa Pichain, Lo Nishma Leo Sheni Milishtos. After the fact, Lot knew what had happened with his daughter that first night. And nevertheless, what happens on the second night? He allows himself to drink. Lot's not accountable for what he did when he was drunk. He's accountable for allowing himself to become drunk once he found out what had happened already on the first night. Moab is the name, La Pasuk Lamed Zion. Says Rashi, The one who was immodest, who the text tells us she slept with her father, builds that immodesty into the name of her child. Moav, Meav, this is my little son, incest. The younger one named her son, at least again, was more modest about it. The Kibbutz Charbimei Moshe received reward from Moshe for it. Shinamar Bibnei Amon, the Atis Garbam, that we were prohibited from agitating the nation of Ammon, Ammon was rewarded from the fact that their great-great-great-grandmother, Lot's younger daughter, was a little bit more modest than her sister. Uvamov lo hisir, 
Moab, we're only told not to wage war, but we're not told to be sensitive and avoid agitating them. We're allowed to aggravate Moab, just don't wage war. Ammon, we're told not to aggravate. Why? Ammon is rewarded from the little bit more tzniyas that the younger daughter had over the, not much, but a little bit more tzniyas the younger daughter had over the older daughter. Okay. Now you don't have this in your, in your Mikroskidolos, but I want to share with you a little bit more. Rabbeinu Bachaya continues in this theme that Rashi alluded to. But what is the secret to understanding this episode is to know that Lot's daughters are not interested in being morally corrupt. They're not acting with interest or desire for incest. They're trying to save the world. They think they're the only ones left. And if there's going to be humanity, if there's going to be continuity, they need to be the ones who step up and do something terribly, terribly unpleasant. Says Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar, did Hashem agree with this plan or not? Well, it says, Vatishkena esavi and yayin balayla. Balayla what? They give their father a drink, balayla. Who? Where's the Pasuk? Vatishkena esavi and yayin balayla. Who? Pasuk Lamed Gimel. They give their father a drink, balayla. What should it say? Hahu. On that night. What is balayla who? Says Rabbeinu Bachya. This does answer the question. It doesn't say Balaila Hahu, it says Laila Hu. Hu is an allusion, allusion to Hashem's name. The text is telling us, says Rabbi Nubachia, that God consented to this plan. God put his name on this plan. Balaila in that night, who? He, God, helped. How did God help, says Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar. This comes back to the question earlier. I'm sorry I said I didn't see anyone talk about it. Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar talks about it. How did God help? He planted wine. There was wine, a bottle of wine, in the cave. So that when they came up with the plan, there was wine available to make it, in order to make it happen. Maybe afterwards it says hahu. Right. But the first time it says lailahu to show Hashem's implicit consent and even cooperation to be able to make the plan happen. Yes, now. Well, I have even a more fundamental question. Did Lot never see a rainbow in his life? Did he never have a conversation with his uncle about what does the rainbow represent? Was he unaware of the promise from Hashem that he would never do it again? So it may be all that. But he's fleeing. And when he's running, he's on his own. It's just him and his two daughters and they run into this cave. Right, did he not think that his uncle merited to still be alive? But this is a tradition. This is the tradition Ghazal had. That the daughters, erroneously, they made a number of miscalculations, thought they were the last ones. I'll tell you something amazing that it's, it's important that you're sitting down for this. This is incredible. Rav Moshe Feinstein. Zechat Tzadik Levracha. Rav Moshe has his Igros Moshe, his response to literature. Volume 8, which was published posthumously, in the introduction to Volume 8, Chelek Ches of Igros Moshe, it tells the following story. I'm going to read it to you in the, in the translation, but you can look it up. It's in the introduction of Chelek Ches of Igros Moshe. In the year, B'tchilas Chorev Tafresh Pei Beis, Chola Echa Mibalabatim, Benafala Mishkov, says Rav Moshe, 1921, this is like, you'd think this is an apocryphal story. This is not exactly, you know, a Kabbalist. Rav Moshe Feinstein, a Litvisha Rosh Hashiva and Posik in the, in the beginning of Chelech Igris Moshe. Everyone left the room and he turned to Rav Moshe and this is what he told him. He said he knows why he contracted the illness. The week before, which was Parshas Vayera, he had been given a drasha in which he berated the daughters of Lot for what they had done. 
He spoke harshly about their act and criticized them especially harshly for the brazenness of naming a child after the deed and thereby publicizing it in perpetuity to everyone. He questioned why they merited to have Mashiach descend from them, considering what they had done. He said that the night before, two elderly, the night before Moshe was visiting with him, two elderly women came to him in a dream and identified themselves as the daughters of Lot. They were upset at the way he had spoken about them and they wanted to respond. They told him, so he told Reb Moshe, that he should not have accused them for living depraved lives and committing such shameful acts. They said, we are from the family of Avraham. Everything we did was righteous and for a purpose. They explained they thought they were the last people on earth to survive the destruction and they had to ensure the continuity of mankind. That required them committing such an act even though it was heinous. They had no other choice. However, they felt that they had to publicize it because if they did not, future generations would make them a deity out of the child born to them because they would consider it a virgin birth considering no other man was around and they would not cohabit with their own father. You hear the logic? It wasn't brazen and chutzpah to name your kid Me'av, my little incestal. That wasn't uh, brazen. It was strategic. They felt if we don't name our children based on the act of incest, people will think these children came to be from immaculate conception. They'll worship this child as a deity. To avoid the result of people thinking it to be a virgin birth and possibly make a religion out of them, they decided they had to publicize what they did no matter how shameful to show everyone there is no such thing as a birth without a father. They concluded that this is exactly the reason they merited having Mashiach descend from them because of the self-sacrifice they displayed in this act. They were willing to put their own reputation and their name in Chumash forever as shameful in an effort to preserve the truth to avoid the birth of a new religion baked on a false premise. And this, and they said this, that is why you have to be punished measure for measure for the harsh words you spoke to us. The man concluded telling the story to Reb Moshe, he turned to the wall and he passed away. Again, Igris Moshe Chelechas, I won't believe it if I didn't see it there with my own eyes. So why does Mashiach descend from such a union? Mashiach comes from this union. So again, Ramosha, based on this story, is one reason that these women really did something incredibly, incredibly um, selfless. They put their own reputation behind in order to be able to do it. But I'll share with you just very quickly a couple of other answers. Tzidkas HaTzadik, Rav Tzadik HaKohen of Lublin, in his Tzidkas HaTzadik, writes differently. What is it that's going to bring Mashiach? Bringing Mashiach is not that everyone's perfect and has no temptation, is born perfect, acts perfect, is perfect. Mashiach comes when people do tshuva. Tshuva is the catalyst for Mashiach. Redemption emerges precisely from a place of lust and sin. Because tshuva... And that's why Mashiach comes only in a generation that is entirely wicked. David, I'm reading to you in translation of Rav Tzadok. <coughs> David is the archetype for the messianic soul. He showed how to make repentance into a life principle. And just that is the realization of ultimate fulfillment. The root of evil will be transformed to good. At that time, the lowest will become the highest. David teaches us how to transform desire and temptation through tshuva, turns temptation into a merit. Tshuva is the process of taking your own failures and shortcomings, the times of indiscretion, and turning that into a merit. So who did that more than David HaMelech? And who has that in their background more? Mashiach is able to overcome all of the suspect, salacious parts of his background. It's not a deficiency or it's not some negative mark on him, but actually it is what prepares him to be able to, to, be able to bring it out. The Shem Yishmuel, Sochachev Rebbe, Shmuel Bornstein, gives another answer. In his Shem Yishmuel, he's writing on, on Rus, and he quotes the Kotzka Rebbe. He says, The Kotzka Rebbe of blessed memory told me regarding the monarchy that there was no one fit to be king, so someone had to be chosen from Ammon and Moab. Thus are his words. This is simple to explain. Since all Israel are friends like one person, it does not work for one to rule over another, just as one organ in a person does not dominate another. Therefore, Israel had to take its monarchy from Ammon and Moab, since the shell of Moab is pride. 
Therefore, the soul of David was embedded in captivity in the shell of Moab, so this matter of pride be removed from the shell and brought to a level of sanctity, rising higher and acquiring dominion for the sake of heaven. It's another answer of the Shem Yishmuel. So we saw the answer, the sick man that confided in Rav Moshe, it was in the merit of the, of the selflessness of the daughters of Lot that Mashiach descends from them. We saw the answer of Rav Tzarek HaKohen, the answer of the Shem Yishmuel. But the last answer I wanted to share with you is from the Rav. The Rav has this wonderful volume, a volume that was published fairly recently of the Rav's talks on Avram Avinu. It's called Abraham's Journey. It's really worthwhile throughout uh, Sefer Brishas to read the whole year long. But he says the following, very, very interesting. Very interesting. Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah, initiated the messianic process of redeeming the world from its crudity and profanity. The Torah was given to the Jew who was told to disseminate the word of God among pagans, atheists, agnostics, hedonists, thereby bringing them to their maker. It is a piecemeal, slow movement. Nevertheless, it will be consummated in the messianic era. Matan Torah is bound up with the Mashiach who will possess the heroism of his grandmothers whom the Almighty found in the non-Jewish world. They represented the heroism of loneliness, the heroism of universal commitment, the heroism of faith and waiting. The ideal of Matan Torah will be fully realized only in the time of Mashiach. This great vision of a redeemed world would have been impossible had Lot's daughters been destroyed in stone. The personality of Mashiach is not monotonic. God weaves the personality of Mashiach with vast amounts of multicolored threads, like Yosef's shirt. The Messianic soul, writes the Rav, is iridescent, multi-talented, rich in thought-filled volition, and will be endowed with talents that seem mutually exclusive. But everything good and fine and noble in man must be passed on to Mashiach. He will have the capacity for gvura and chesed. He will be a hero with unlimited power and strength who will defend justice. He will be a man of unlimited loving kindness, humble and simple. All these capabilities, capacities, and talents will merge in beautiful harmony in Mashiach. Mashiach will represent creation at its best. Apparently then, Lot's daughters had something beautiful in them to contribute to Mashiach's rich and powerful personality. If there is something fine in the non-Jewish families of the earth, it too will pass on to Mashiach. Lot's daughters had something beautiful to contribute. What did this, pr- what did this primitive girl possessed of the Almighty, gathering virtues and noble traits from all over the world, picked up? She was uncouth and primitive. She committed incest. And yet she's the great-great-grandmother of Rus. The Mashiach will be her descendant, says the Rav. She was under the impression, quotes Rashi, we saw, that a cosmic cataclysm had struck and only three human beings had survived. She acted as she did because she wanted to save humanity. The girl wanted to rebuild the world, to start from scratch, to raise another race to take the place of the human race, which she believed had been destroyed simultaneously with the destruction of stone. This was heroism of an undreamt caliber. Instead of giving up, she had the courage to try to rebuild the world, to make a new humanity arise from the ashes of stone. She convinced her younger sister, never mind that their method was primitive and crude. These two girls took upon themselves an impossible task, something staggering and awesome. The plan per se was reprehensible, but their motivation was imaginative, noble and heroic. The King Mashiach will save the world. He will achieve what his great-great-grandmothers wanted to do. The great-great-grandmother-grandson, Mashiach, will accomplish what the lonely girls could not. The heroism of Lod's daughters consisted in their commitment to mankind and their urge to save it. So you understand, Mashiach descends from the two girls because they did what they did because they wanted to save mankind. That trait needed to be embedded, planted in Mashiach. Mashiach comes needing to be willing to be selfless in the pursuit of saving the world. And that is exactly what these two girls did. The Rav continues, Mashiach, well then with this, Mashiach has another grandmother who came to us from the Gentile world. Tamar, the daughter of, Yud, of Yehuda. She was the great-great-grandmother of Boaz and consequently of David and therefore Mashiach. The Medrash, uh, Joseph, is there? Tamar was a heroic woman. God gleaned and gathered beautiful things from throughout the world. Gems, noble emotions, heroic capabilities. What could Tamar do that others could not? She could wait. She possessed the heroic ability and the patience to wait without end. Right? She's waiting for a son through her husband, and then through her brother-in-law, and then she concocts the scheme with her father. The Torah tells us that she waits. Tamar waited many years. She was lonely, forsaken, forgotten by everyone. Seasons passed. All her friends married, reared families. All contact with them came to an end. 
people treated her with ridicule and contempt. Shlom married, Yehuda had forgotten her. And yet she waited and never said a word. Wasn't she the incarnation of Knesset Yisrael, which has waited for her beloved hundreds of thousands of years? Did not Tamar personify the greatest of all heroic action? To wait while the waiting arouses laughter and derision? And that's Mashiach also, descends from somebody who has the ability to patient and wait for the time of redemption, even in the face of derision of the world. And then yet another grandmother who came to us from the Gentile world, Rus, who was also heroic, who does loving kindness. So the Rav develops longer. I encourage you to read it in his book, Abraham's Journey. But basically, Mashiach needed to have these traits. The trait of selfless devotion to the continuity of mankind, to redemption. The trait of patience. The trait of Rus, of loving kindness. And those traits were gleaned even from the most unusual and unpredictable sources, but ultimately they combine to be the progenitors of the Holy Mashiach. So this section of our Parsha has an entire subtext, which is very different than what you read on the surface. Not only are the daughters of Lotz not evil villains, in some ways they're very holy women who themselves become the progenitors of Mashiach. Yes? Going back to the beginning, where you had said 